The scripture reading for this evening comes from Mark 15, 16 through 39. This is God's word. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, tonight we come to Mark's account of the events that lead up to and include the crucifixion of Jesus. And over the past year or so, we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark. And the main purpose of this gospel is essentially to help you to answer the question, who is Jesus? And... What I want to help you to see tonight as we begin looking at this passage is that if that's the central purpose of Mark's gospel, as we approach the end, how do we know that's the purpose of it? Well, at the very beginning of his gospel, in verse 1, he begins, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the passage that we come to tonight, it ends like this. If you look in verse 39... There's the centurion who is a Roman soldier about mid-rank. He's the head of the 
the group who crucifies Jesus, he ends the passage by saying this, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So the the book begins with this assertion that Jesus is the Son of God. And now as we're approaching the very end, after he is crucified, a Roman centurion soldier confesses and proclaims Jesus to be the Son of God. And the question for us I want to consider with you tonight is this. What does the death of Jesus reveal about his identity? Or to put it maybe a little more personally for you, what is it about the way Jesus died that can forever change your life like it did for this centurion, this Roman soldier? You see, the centurion here in this story is the one character who is uh, consistent throughout all of these verses. He is a part of the group of soldiers that would have taken Jesus uh, away from Pilate into the governor's headquarters that we read about in verse 16. And he was the one who, with a smaller group, maybe four, five, or six, took Jesus outside the city to Golgotha, where he was crucified. And he witnessed all that happened, even to the point when Jesus stopped breathing. And so I want to look at this question with you. What does the death of Jesus teach us about who he really is? And to do that, I want us to see three things. I want want to look at the king that nobody wanted, the son that God rejected, and then we'll finish by looking at the power of the cross. So first we'll look at the king that nobody wanted, then the son that God rejected, and then finish with looking at the power of the cross. So first, let's look at the king that nobody wanted. If you look here in verses 16 through 32, it's a big chunk here. That whole section, three times Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews. He's referred to by, as the king of the Jews by the soldiers. It's actually then uh, placarded on, onto the cross above his head as a charge against him, an indictment. And then he's actually referred to as the king of Israel, or also king of the Jews, in verse 32 by the religious leaders. But in each case, it's, it's not a title of dignity, it's a title of mockery, of derision, of scorn by all of these people, by the Roman soldiers, by the chief priests, and by all the onlookers, all the bystanders, as, as, as Mark calls them. And so, for the political leaders here, for the religious leaders, and even the crowds, Jesus, he doesn't fit any notion of a king at all. Now, what what do we mean by that? Well, let's look at the soldiers for a moment. In verses 16 through 20, to the Roman soldiers, Jesus doesn't look like a king. And why not? Well, he has no emblems of a king, which is why they come to him with this purple robe and they put a crown on his head. Jesus doesn't have a bearing of a king. He has none of the, the, uh, the emblems that a king has that show his royalty and his dignity and his power and his authority, his status, because none of those things 
throughout the, the, the gospel ever are attributed to Jesus as emblems of his identity, of his authority. Well, what are the things that identify Jesus as the king, as God's only chosen king? It's his word and his work. And then again and again, his word and his work are dismissed, misunderstood, misrepresented. So first, Jesus doesn't fit any kind of picture of a king according to the, to the soldiers, but neither does he for the chief priests, the religious leaders. If you look here in verses 31 to 32, and you also notice in verse 29, three times in these verses, Jesus is accused or he is uh, mocked for not being able to save himself. He is accused here and mocked for being powerless. The idea is that if Jesus can't save himself, then surely he can't save anyone else. And so the religious leaders say he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So Jesus doesn't look like a king. He doesn't have the emblems of a king. And now he doesn't act like one. He looks like a weakling of failure who had lots of perhaps show early on, but when it really counts, he doesn't have what it takes to even rescue himself. Now, I suppose it would be worth and we could take some time to ask, what's your view of Jesus? Does he look like a king to you? Does he exist in your life like a king that you would want? Or does he seem like just sort of weak and insufficient well, despite the, the appearances here in this passage, and even though Jesus, on the surface of it, his death looks like a failure, what I want to try to show you for a moment here is that Jesus' death was neither a failure nor was it a fiction. But in fact, it was the fulfillment of Scripture. My guess is that for perhaps many of us or perhaps many of our friends, we look at the message of Christianity and we, we often might have this reaction of, you know, it just doesn't work. It's a failure. Jesus just does not come through. Or, it just didn't really happen. I, I can't understand why you people still believe in this thing 2,000 years ago. Sure, fine, Jesus maybe had some helpful things to say. That sure, if we followed it, we might be a better person or we might, our society might be better, but there are lots of religions that say similar things to Jesus, but it doesn't really matter if it happened. Well, what I want you to see here is Mark wants you to know that this is far from a failure and it is far from a fiction. Several times in this passage, uh, Mark, the way that he tells the story he draws on passages like Psalm 22, which we read earlier in our responsive reading, or Psalm 69. There are a number of echoes in this passage from Isaiah 53, 
Perhaps one of the most significant ones is in verse 34, which quotes from Psalm 22, verse 1, when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, what Mark wants you to see here is that this is not a failure. When we see Jesus suffering at the hands of his enemies, being mocked. No, it's in fact the fulfillment of what the scriptures foretold. And Jesus himself, you can go back and look in chapter 10, verse 34. He actually says exactly what we see happen to him here at the hands of the Roman soldiers. So it's not a failure, it's a fulfillment, and neither is it a fiction. Perhaps it'd be easy to run past this, but I I do want to draw your attention to it. If you look in verse 21, after Jesus has been mocked, he's been flogged, he's been abused by the Roman soldiers, and they're now walking out to crucify him, there's a passerby, his name is Simon, Simon of Cyrene. And Mark tells us that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, my guess is, you know, it's easy to to run right past that. But ask the question, why does Mark include those two names? Why does Mark tell us about these people? There really is no good explanation except for one. And that explanation is this. Alexander and Rufus, the way that Mark writes the story assumes that the readers of his gospel would know who they are. That's the assumption, the way that he writes this. And what Mark is saying essentially is this. Hey, what I'm telling you, what I'm writing to you is no fiction. If you want to check what I'm writing, go ask Alexander and Rufus. Their dad carried Jesus' cross. This is a claim to an eyewitness account. Here, Mark is trying to help you to see, yeah, there are some amazing things that are hard to believe that I'm telling you about Jesus, but it really did happen. Now, why is that important? Why make an issue about did it really happen? Here's why. If, if you approach Christianity like this and you say, you know, I don't understand why it really matters if it happened or not. If I just follow what Jesus said, there's plenty there that can really help me out. Well, that may be true. But that's not Christianity. The reason that matters that it really happened is that Christianity is a religion of grace. Christianity, you're not saved by what you do. You are saved by what Jesus has done. In history, in real space and time, in his life, that's what Christianity is all about. That's why it matters that it really happened. Because if it didn't happen, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, this is a big joke. There are perhaps better things for you to be doing. But Mark wants you to know that, no, this actually did happen. This was no failure. This was no fiction. And in fact, this is what these folks are struggling with. And perhaps you are too. And it's the great irony of the Christian faith. That the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it doesn't fit any categories. The power of God in the gospel doesn't fit any categories that we come up with. And here's... 
Here's why, to quote from Paul elsewhere. This is the reason why Christianity is so hard for us to absorb. And it's because God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And everyone in this story that we're looking at tonight chafes at that idea. The basic assumption is, no, God's power is made perfect in power, in demonstrations of power, in overthrowing the Romans who have occupied his people's land. But here is Jesus mocked, rejected, alone, scorned. It's weakness. And it's in his weakness that we see God's power. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for example, where Paul writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's power is made perfect in weakness. This is the king that nobody wanted. And this is the good news of Christianity. It's found, it's not found in strength and might. It's found where no one wanted to look. It's found in the weakness of Jesus. It's found in this son that God rejected. So let's look secondly at the son that God rejected here. Look in verse 33. After an onslaught of mockery, after Jesus has been crucified by the Romans hanging on the cross, in verse 33, it's the sixth hour. And the way that uh, Jews reckoned time, uh, this would be, the sixth hour would be 12 noon. So it's midday. And Mark tells us that there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So think about this for a moment. On the cross, what we have here is Jesus undergoing a crucifixion unlike any other. From 12 noon until 3 p.m., there is a darkness covering the entire land. It's pitch black. It's a crucifixion unlike any other. Perhaps this one feature of this event grips the centurion more than any other, and leads him to confess that Jesus is the son at the end. But whatever the case may be, here we have an echo of the Exodus. Remember, just a previous chapter, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And just before God initiates the Passover with his people, back in Exodus chapter 12, if you, if you remember, God, God's people are in Egypt and they're being oppressed by the Egyptians and they cry out for deliverance and God sends Moses. And in doing so, he sends a number of plagues against the Egyptians. And the very last plague before the Passover is a plague of darkness where God darkens the entire land of Egypt And that's the last word he speaks to Pharaoh, that he will send a plague of darkness. And the next and final plague is the angel of death. When God says to all of his people, at midnight, 
all of the firstborn of Egypt, even to the animals, will be killed. Only those who kill the Passover lamb and put the blood on your doorframe will you be spared. Now you see, here we have, during the Passover, we have darkness and we have a sacrifice. See, here on the cross is the fulfillment of that exodus. Jesus, hanging on the cross, the plague of darkness before the death of the firstborn, but this time, it's not a lamb. It's the Son of God who dies. And only those who are covered by his sacrifice, by his shed blood, are spared the wrath of God. That's what the, gospel, the Christian message is. That's the good news about Jesus. And as horrible as this crucifixion was, the real horror is in the cry of Jesus in verse 34. What is so horrible about this? I think it's really interesting to notice how little detail Mark goes into to describe the act of crucifixion. Now, one of the reasons for that is that was a known phenomenon in the first century. You didn't really have to explain for a first century person what Roman crucifixion was. If you just said crucifixion, people knew it. But notice here, he spends way more time describing the verbal abuse that Jesus receives as well as the horror of of the experience with the darkness And Jesus cry here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus' cry in the dark here is Jesus' experience of bearing sin, of being the substitute, the sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. The darkness here symbolizes God's displeasure, or it's the cup that Jesus mentioned that he was asking to be spared of earlier. Jesus here on the cross, the darkness is the father hiding his face from his son. It's cosmic spiritual darkness and breakdown. It's Jesus bearing the penalty for sin, for history past, history future, Jesus here is extinguishing the wrath of God in his own body on the cross. He's alienated, he's forsaken, he's abandoned, he's experiencing hell itself. See, Jesus entered into the spiritual darkness and disintegration and breakdown that our sin deserves. That's what this darkness is meant to show. God saying... You are no longer my son. So that for everyone who turns to Jesus, they would never, ever be forsaken. Perhaps you remember at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus was baptized. He comes out of the water. And what happens? The heavens break open and a voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But here on the cross, nothing but displeasure I don't know if you've ever experienced the silent treatment before. 
But it's a pretty awful experience. When someone will not speak to you. It's dehumanizing. It begins to crack your sense of self. Your sense of identity. Who you really are. Someone whom you love is no longer treating you in a way that you were used to be treated. That's what Jesus endured on the cross. That's what you and I deserve. He, was tre- he took the cosmic, eternal, silent treatment for you. See, now therefore, when, when you begin to notice that, you begin to pay attention to what's happening here on the cross. The cross of Jesus, as the son who is rejected, it is profoundly humbling. At the very same time, it is profoundly affirming. What, what do I mean? Think about this. It's profoundly humbling because nothing less than the death of the Son of God can pay the penalty for your sin. Your sin is that gross. It's that serious. It's that offensive to God that nothing short of the death of His beloved Son can deal with that problem. But... At the very same time, it is, in, it is Jesus' death that reveals the depth and the extent and the riches and the sufficiency of God's love. At the very same time. That in looking at the cross, it's profoundly humbling, but it's profoundly affirming. You know, s- some people look at, at, at the cross like this. They think, okay, gee, God's upset with me because I'm a sinner. Jesus pays the penalty for my sin and he makes it so that God's not mad at me anymore. That is not Christianity. At best, that's half, halfway there. You see, the cross of Jesus is not Jesus dying on the cross for you and then going back to his father and saying, please don't be mad anymore. That's not it. Christianity, the cross of Jesus is God saying, I so love the world that I sent my son to die on a cross for you. You see, the cross is not Jesus trying to change God's mind. The cross is God's settled, resolute, eternal commitment and love for sinners wrapped up in the death of Jesus. So if you have a hard time knowing, does God love me? You need only look at the cross. That's God's love poured out for you. Will you take it? It's free. It's a gift. It costs you nothing except to just take it. In 1 John 4 verse 10, the Apostle John writes this, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see this? The cross as both profoundly humbling and affirming at the very same time. However, my guess is that for for many of you, I suspect that you're struggling or even resistant to what this passage teaches us. And for whatever reason, perhaps you find yourself doubting 
God's love or thinking, I'm just too messed up for this to really work for me. And if that's the case, we need to to look at the power of the cross. So we've looked at the king that nobody wanted and the son that God rejected. And I want to finish by looking at the power of the cross. Look here in verse 38 and 39. After Jesus has been hanging on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Underneath this abandoned, forsaken darkness. And he draws his last breath. Mark adds in verse 38, the power of the cross. He says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what's, what's Mark trying to teach us here? Very simple. The death of Jesus removes any and all barriers for coming to God. By this one very brief reference to the, temp, the, the curtain in the temple, there are essentially two curtains. And there's some debate about, is, it, is this referring to an outer curtain or is this referring to the curtain that uh, is about 20, it's it, very high, I, I forget exact height, but very high, that uh, a curtain that comes between uh, everybody and everything except the Holy of Holies, where the ark is, where God is pictured to his, uh, the mercy seat. And only the high priest once a year was allowed to go in there. And here, what we have is, is the cross of Jesus from top to bottom has torn that in two. That means there's now no more barrier. There's no more curtain. This is the end of the temple. Interesting that previous in this passage, Jesus is mocked. In verse 29, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, here Jesus has destroyed the temple. God has said in his son, all of the ways that I used to relate to you, they are over. There are no more sacrifices. There are no more priests. That is over because the priest and the sacrifice has come. He has come. He has opened the way back to me. See, here we have, this is why Christians don't sacrifice animals anymore. This is why we don't have priests anymore. Because in Jesus, we're told that there is only one mediator between us and God, and it is the Lord Jesus. Not only that, think about this on a little more practical level. Here, the cross brings to an end any strategy to impress God or earn his favor. Every attempt of our own to establish our own righteousness fails. That's what this means. That there is only one way to come to God, and it is through Jesus, and it is a free gift. Now, what does this mean for you? What this means, it's now possible to replace insecurity with confidence and doubt with assurance. Are you insecure? Are you afraid? Are you played with doubt? Jesus has taken away the barrier. There is now, it is possible to have confidence and assurance. 
Listen as we, uh, let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. This is actually on the front of your worship folder. The, I'm going to read just a couple of verses where the writer, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's what the cross means for you. You can trust God with what you don't know because of his love. And you can be honest about your fears and your failures because Jesus is your worthiness. So how do you experience this power of the cross that breaks down the barriers that enables you to come directly to God through Jesus? Well, look at the the centurion. He stood facing him. And he saw that in this way, the way that he died, that he truly was the Son of God. You see, I think oftentimes we want to make this more complicated than it is. But what Jesus, what Mark shows us here about Jesus, the power of the cross, is that the way you experience this is simply by gazing at him. By letting the cross have its way with you. Because here, look at this centurion. Mark tells us almost nothing about him. Chances are he knows very little about Jewish religion or about the Old Testament scriptures and the Messiah that was to come. And yet here he's looking at Jesus on the cross and, and proclaims he is the Son of God. He's an outsider. He's an unexpected one. And he gets it right by gazing on the cross. So what did this... Centurion C. Well, he saw that here's a king that nobody wanted, but he's the king that everybody needs. He saw that here is a son that is rejected by God, as Jesus says, so that you and I might be welcomed. And here he experienced the power of the cross, and as a result, he couldn't look at Jesus any other way. Do you know that Jesus? Have you seen Jesus through the scriptures on the cross and experienced what this means in such a way that he no longer is just a man anymore who said amazing things and did some amazing things, but you were able to say in faith, this truly is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this this story. Thank you that You have told us about Jesus, about what his death on the cross means. And we pray that as we behold him according to your word, as we behold him in the supper that he's given us, we ask that you would meet with us by your spirit and that we too every day would be able to say truly, This is the Son of God, for it's in his name that we pray, amen.